please be seated. Again, welcome to Christ the King. We have a tradition on Labor Day, uh, a tradition that I picked up from the church I began, the Falls Church, in which we turn our attention to work. And uh, rather than hear from me, you will hear from a parishioner who will share a little bit about their work. Why do we do this? Well, for a couple of reasons. We believe that work matters. Uh, we believe, uh, I believe that work matters on a personal basis, especially in an area like ours, people believe in what they do. They come here to make a difference. Uh, and that's probably true everywhere, but it's especially true here. And it's a very natural question, natural response to the question of uh, what do you do? Tell me about yourselves. It's, we often respond with our work. That's a very natural thing. It's important. And there are a few things that are more satisfying than a good, hard day of, worse, of work that demands your, your best labor. So work is important to you personally. I guess more importantly for the subjects of a church, uh, work is important to God. Um, Genesis chapter 1 gives such a high opinion, a high valuation of your work, you almost, you miss it. What I mean is this, that Genesis begins with God at work. Uh, God forms, he creates, he is hard at work, he gets dirt under his fingernails, crafting man and woman from the dirt of the ground. No work is below him. And then after he's done with creation, he says something to first man and first woman. He's, the first thing he t tells us, his first words are go and carry on my work. Have dominion, have responsibility. He creates, we cultivate, and all good work falls under that category. Cultivating in some way God's good creation, whether your work is uh, civil responsibilities in the government, healthcare, education, homemaker, defense, what. Uh, law, the, the number of ways that God can work through our work is almost without count. The reformers, Martin Luther, would refer to our work as the mask of God. What did he mean by that? He meant this, that your God is often hidden behind the work you do. You think about it. We pray for health. We've spent a lot of time praying for health these past couple of years, haven't we? How does God care, provide health? and uh, restoration of health. Sometimes he intervenes miraculously, but more often than not, the way God answers our prayers for recovery of health is through those who have the vocation, through the medicine, through the doctors, through the nurses who provide the means of your restoration. That is why we can refer to our work as the mask of God, God hidden behind what you do. And so with that, I'll end my introduction and introduce our guest speaker. Our guest speaker is Chris Steyerwalt. Chris uh, began his career in journalism in Wheeling, West Virginia, working for the Wheeling Intelligencer. He went on to work for the Washington Examiner, Fox News Channel, and now is with AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on American politics. He's a journalist, and that's a very important career. There's a great prayer from our Book of Common Prayer that I stumbled upon as I thought about this morning, and that prayer goes something like this. Almighty God, you proclaim your truth in every age by many voices direct in our time. We pray those who speak where many listen and write what many read. And here's why. So that the people, the hearts of the people may be wise, its mind sound, and its will righteous. I've asked Chris to share a little bit about his work, about how he was called to his work, about some of the challenges he finds in his work, and how 
here, like all of us, can seek to glorify God through the work. We offer these testimonies not to elevate one career, one calling over another, but simply to highlight that God has called each of you to various callings and that through our callings, you and I can serve his purposes in the world. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. Thank you, and good morning. The, um, uh, it is a very unusual. So when they do the surveys, you read periodically, they do surveys about respecting which, which professions are the most respected, which are the, which are the least. I'm a political journalist. This puts me uh, essentially between roadkill and divorce lawyers. This is not, I, I am not, I, I have not worked in what has been deemed uh, the most respected or most revered institution, which is just fine for me because I am into low expectations. Low expectations are crucial. Uh, uh, I, I John Baynard my way through the one at nine o'clock, uh, so hopefully I won't need my, uh, net, my uh, handkerchief as much for this, but this is a serious honor for me to be asked to get to do this because I give dozens of speeches every year. I write, I do books, I do blah, 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 blah. I do interviews, I go on TV, but this is a lot closer to the heart for me and a lot more important, so I really thank you for letting me be here with you today. Um, when I was 17 and graduating high school in Wheeling, West Virginia, I had a wonderful plan for my summer. I was going to run up my father's account at the country club, play golf, uh, and flirt with girls around the tennis court. I knew what I was going to do. I had a plan. And my father appeared like a vision in the doorway. And he stood there. And I was laying in my bed thinking about how wonderful my summer was going to be. And he said, I hope that you don't think that you're going to spend your summer playing golf on my dime and chasing girls. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I was thinking. How did you know? How did he know? Uh, and he said, you'll have to get a job. You'll have to get a job. So, of course, I being... Uh, indiligent, uh, uh, fat and sassy, neglected this instruction from my father until it was too late. And he said, how's the job search going? And I realized that my father, who was a kind, loving, gentle Christian man, did mean that this was actually going to happen. And I had to get work. And in the town of Wheeling, West Virginia, there were not a lot of jobs, there are not a lot of jobs ever to be had in the town of Wheeling, West Virginia, but there are not a lot of jobs for indiligent 17-year-old wastrels who are looking to get out of trouble with their father. But my brother knew a guy who was going to start a hot dog stand. Now you're thinking like the New York hot dog stand and people are crowded. No, this would have been one me by myself in a downtown of 20,000 people with uh, a vat of uh, hot dog water trying to sell people uh, Frankfurters on the street. This would have been more than the average adolescent's sh easily shattered male ego could possibly withstand. My friends, the girls from my classes, fathers would see, I would be seen and known and it would be the worst thing. And I was despairing. But I thought, well, I ha I'll have to do something. And my fears had not reached their zenith until I heard the hot dog stand proprietor, this Frankfurter converter, had said to me, as for the, as for the uniform, and I thought, no, 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 sir, not this. He said, you can wear whatever you want, but you'll have to wear a hat. I just want you to wear this hat. And it was one of those foldo paper hats, and it had a little drawing right at the end of a dancing hot dog. And I died. I literally, my, it was like the cartoons where you see 
the road with, with the lilies and flies up into heaven. There was no way. So what am I going to do? So as I'm driving out after um, the, the interview, <laughs> the paper hat related interview, I thought, what am I going to do? And we, I went past the newspaper. And I, uh, Mark Twain's uh, line about what it takes, the two ingredients for success are ignorance and arrogance. And I had lots of both. So at 17, I walked into the publisher's office. I asked to see him. I was allowed in because I knew that my dad knew him. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get a job. And he gave me a job. I, there I was. For no, I had no reason to be there. I had not spent my time in journalism. I had not worked on that stuff. It had never occurred to me that that's what I would want to be. But he gave me a job writing sports, nighttime, American Legion baseball. Phone rings. You answer it. How many hits they have in the third? OK, fine. Write up 25 words. Do the box score. And let me tell you, I walked into that newsroom. And the carpeting was held together with electrical tape. Looks like it had been put in, been put in during the Coolidge administration. And it's all held together with tape down there. And the computers, you can't call them computers, they were word processors from this Paleolithic era. Uh, it was uh, ashtrays as big as hubcaps, smoldering like Mount Vesuvius, uh, ill-tempered, uh, foul language, uh, crabby people. And I knew immediately that I had found my tribe and I had found my people forever. I walked into that newsroom, and I knew that I was absolutely 100% home with these people. And the, the seat of everything good in my life is gratitude. And the thing that is an, an outrageous good fortune, outrageous providence in my life, is that I went on to college. I, I met the requirements to technically be graduated from college so I could go back and be a reporter again. And when I did, and did news, college newspaper and all that stuff, but when I did, I have been able to sustain myself and then children for more than 20 years by writing and talking about politics. That is astonishing, right? Um, it is, to me, a, a marvel every time I get to do this or get to do something that it's true that I've gotten away. I truly feel like I've robbed a bank and that God has given me and what journalism truly is, we can debate whether it's a profession, is it a craft, is it this, is it whatever. Like a lot of other things, it has to be a vocation. Voce, you have to be called to it. And I knew I was called to it. And I was convicted of it that I loved it so much that I was so happy to be there. And I didn't know that I was poor. I was so offended after a few years to find out that I had been eligible for food stamps before. I took offense to that. I did not know, right? writing five stories a week, making uh, a cool uh, 250 bucks a week at the Wheeling uh, Intelligencer starting out, I thought that was normal. Uh, I didn't know that I was lucky to be weird. And so I was nervous when it was time after a few months to go on to Charleston, the capital city, and go cover the state house there and go do that stuff. But I was excited to get to go do it uh, and moving on up and doing, doing these things as we're supposed to do. And spent a very profitable time in Charleston but along the way, the most important thing that happened in Charleston was that I renewed my walk with Christ, that I got, I walked into First Presbyterian Church uh, in Charleston and came home. And I had a life that was pleasing and that, that uh, I had, uh, was aligning with the, the values and virtues that were important to me and life was good. And then it was time to move to Washington, D.C. And it got scary. 
right? Um, and I had to move to Washington, D.C. Uh, God made it very clear this is where I was going. And I had resisted in the past coming up. So in 2007, I make my way to Washington. Uh, and I was a relative, I was relatively new back in the church. It's a couple of years. And I wondered, how will I proceed in this? How will this be? Um, and I struggled with it because in Washington, there are a lot fewer Christians, of course, than there are in West Virginia as a percentage basis. But there's also just a lot fewer people of faith, right? Whether your obs religious observance is lower than it is in a place like West Virginia. Uh, and certainly there is some hostility in, out there in the water to people who are professing Christians. That's a real thing. Um, and that that can come with consequences, right? It can come with consequences to be a professing Christian uh, in politics and public life, that's true. But also, there are people who use it to their advantage. There are also people who wear their uh, faith like a boutonniere on their lapel, walking around, getting extra credit for being Christian. I didn't want to do either of those. I didn't want to exploit my faith. I did not want to use my faith to advance my position, but neither did I want to retreat. Neither did I want to shy away and be ashamed of it. And I didn't know how to do it. This one will get me, I bet. Um, Acts 23. From Acts 23, uh, Paul is panicking, and the Lord appears to him, and he says, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. If you're a Christian in Charleston, you're a Christian in Washington. And I would just have to hope that the Holy Spirit would meet me as I went and how I went and show me when it was time to speak up and when it was time to be silent. And I can tell you that from the moment I made the decision that I would be honest in public about who I was, and again, not to, not to tell the world, not to come proclaiming, my message is the work that I do professionally has to be heard by people who are Christians, who are non-Christians, people who are believers, who are non-believers, how the election is gonna turn out what's gonna go on in the contest, how are things in America's media climate, those are things that I need to be able to talk about, not apart from my faith, certainly informed by my faith, but not with that as the first thing because I have to be accessible to everybody. Along the way, I have never, any single occasion when I felt moved to tell the truth, have I been sorry. Not, that has not been ever, I have only experienced good things. I know that sometimes we have to pay a price for professing, but at every time in my career, in an office personally, on air, whenever, when I knew that the moment came and I trusted what the Holy Spirit was putting in front of me, it was right. And I have confidence that that will continue to be the case. Now the downside to all of this is, is that once you say, you gotta do, right? Once I've said who I am and people go, oh, that's nice, I, I understand you're a Christian, I hear your people talk to me about my faith and this is going on. I spend 10 years working at Fox. But if you say that's who you are, then you must act that way and be accountable to that professionally. And you come upon a time in your life when you will do the right thing and be punished for doing the right thing. You will do right and still be punished for doing it. And I, this year, got to go through an experience where, I'll put it this way, somebody said, after I got fired at Fox, somebody compared me, David Frum compared me to a Soviet general in the Air Force 
who refused an order and thereby prevented World War III. And I said, well, David, that makes me a commie in this story, so I don't know if I like it, but I appreciate the sentiment. But in telling the truth and, and saying what I knew and how I knew and, and doing my job, I was not doing anything heroic or big or anything like that. That's all I was doing. But it did make other people very upset. Uh, when we talked about Joe Biden was going to win the presidency, it made people very upset. And I understand why they were upset. I didn't, I get it. I understood. But uh, to stick with our Martin Luther theme, uh, here I stand, I can do no other. This is what the numbers say, this is how it is. So I didn't think of myself as doing a brave thing, I thought of myself as doing a necessary thing. And when I got fired, and when I was thrown out, um, for much of that day, I was truly despairing. Truly I was despairing because I, of course, had, unbeknownst to myself, made an idol of my work and made an idol of my celebrity and made an idol of my prominence and all of those things. I had built a lovely, lovely reliquary in my heart where I just was so admired what I was doing and I forgot why God put me there and how I was there. And a few hours later, I found myself I was not going to tell my sons because I was too upset. And I thought they would see me upset and then they would be scared because their dad is unemployed and he's crying. So you don't want an unemployed crying dad ever. This is, a, this is something I, I knew I did not want. Um, but I had uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I had David. I had people praying for me. I had people encouraging me. Um, and by the time I was sitting there at the table with them, the Holy Spirit gave me this as I sat with my sons, that it's never the wrong time to get fired for doing the right thing, that it's never the wrong time to get fired for doing the right thing, and that sometimes in our life to do the right thing will come with consequences, and that's when it really counts, and that's what really matters, and sometimes I hope for them that they get the chance to get fired for doing the right thing, right, because the blessing that I have received out of this personally, I think it's made me a better dad, I think it's made me a better uh, um, I, I think it's made me a better man. I hope it's made me a better boyfriend. I hope it's made me a better lot of stuff along the way. Um, but what it also has done is given me a new opportunity to bear witness. It's given me a new opportunity that and when I give my speeches, when I give my talks, when I go around, as I'm working on a book, that the witness that I have is strengthened by the fact that I am perceived, fairly or unfairly, I don't deserve a lot of the uh, a lot of the honors, including this one, that I have been given. But if that means that there are more people who see that you can live faithfully as a Christian in your work and do it the right way, then this has been the greatest blessing yet in my professional career. I am so grateful to Christ the King, to the family here, um, for the friendships here, for the support here during difficult seasons of my life, most of which I've made more difficult all on my own. Uh, it has been a wonderful thing to be here and be with you today and every day. So thanks, guys. Thank you, Chris. Labor Day. It's a great Sunday. It's a great time for you to think about your work. The possibility that uh, God could be hidden behind your work, whatever that work is. It's a great time to think of how you were called, as uh, Chris was sharing. You know, as I thought about callings, I, I tend to think, like, where am I, where are you just don't fit in? Uh, when I was a kid, 10 years old, I was not a goody-two-shoe by any stretch of the imagination, but I just liked church. 
Uh, strangely, I'd go cycle down to my local church and hang out with my pastors and talk shop. And in hindsight, just not a whole, whole lot of 10-year-old boys uh, who got in a lot of trouble were doing that. And as I thought about my vocation, that's, that's sort of a place where I, st I stood out. And I thought, maybe God has his hand on me in that particular area. And I doubt there's too many people who like duct tape carpet and ashtrays smoldering like Mount Vesuvius and that whole line of work that you described, but that's a way that God has wired you. And God has, the good thing is that God has wired each of us in a particular way. And he has, as we thought about last week, given you good things to do. So my encouragement for you this Sunday, this Sunday and Monday, this Labor Day weekend, think about your work. How are you called to it? What is the purpose of it? I mean, the vocation of journalism is a great one. The vocation of, but every vocation has the potential to be a great one, doesn't it? And so again, my encouragement, think about your work, how you were called to it, and what is its purpose? Because the good news that we've thought about today is that, look, the possibility exists that God could be hidden behind the work that you do.